Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is a selection of verses from 1 Peter 4 and 5. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something were strange happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest. My name is Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace, and we're going to be talking about the end of 1 Peter this morning. If you want to take out a blue Bible, we'll be in pages 1016 and 1017. But before that, I'd like to pray. And we pray every morning before the service, a group of us do. And while we were praying, um, this moment in the novel Jane Eyre came to mind. Now, I've been thinking and reading Jane Eyre and about a lot this last week, and I know some of you are like, that just seems so boring. If you think that, it's your fault. Um, and uh, I think that if you should you should read the book. It's amazing. But the thought that came to mind was this moment in the story, and it's kind of like between these two moments, um, where Jane's past is kind of behind her and her future, it looks really uncertain. And, and she's kind of wandering. And before she gets to where she's going to be, uh, she has this like a spiritual epiphany 
this, en- this encounter with God. And it's really interesting um, because I went from here to the, my office to print this out. And then, Ursula, you started the service the way you did, um, speaking about just this idea of God being praised and why he should be praised. And then Beth read Psalm 121 and talking about looking to the hills and to God and where does this help come from. And this moment, and Jane's words, I think, fit so beautifully in that. Uh, and it makes me wonder, certainly we all need to be reminded of the assurance of God's love and care for us. But I wonder if there are some of you this morning, you especially need to hear that. And this is going to be the third time that's kind of something about who God is and that we can trust God with our lives is kind of being spoken over you. Um, So consider that, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into Peter. So this is what Jane says when she has this moment, and she's out in the middle of the night, and she kind of looks upon the sky, and she says, We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us. And it is in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course, and that we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the Milky Way, and it was mighty. Remembering what it was, what countless systems there swept space like a soft trace of light, I felt the might and strength of God. Sure was I of his efficiency to save what he had made. Convinced I grew that neither earth should perish nor one of the souls it treasured. I turned my prayer to thanksgiving. The source of life was also the savior of spirits. I wonder if perhaps God this morning is wanting us to encounter him in such a way that we are reminded that the God who has created us is the God who is so intent on bringing us close through Jesus that we might be saved. May we have an encounter with God this morning through his text. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Thank you that you are a God whose works are spread across the sky, that you are the God, when we look to hills, we are reminded that you are the one who gives us help. That you are the God who is worthy to be praised because of what you have made. You are the God who is with us even now in this space. Thank you, God, that you are here. Thank you, God, that you care. Thank you, God, that you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this last section in 1 Peter, we've, we've gone through three different sermons, and this is the last, the fourth sermon, where we've kind of gone through this book. And it's been um, a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Peter, so I just kind of want to give a quick overview of where we've been um, that kind of brings us to this place. So remember, Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus, and he's the rock on on which the the church would be built. And he founded these churches in Asia Minor, which would be like modern-day Turkey. And they're undergoing persecution from like the Roman occupation. And he writes this letter to them to give them hope amid that suffering. And we talked about in the first few verses, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12, that, that Peter almost seems as if his main pastoral task is to remind the people of who they are. To remind them of their identity in God and in Christ. 
But then he also offers them words of security, that they can know who they are, but they can be secure in who they are because of what God has done in Jesus through the resurrection. And he's given us a new identity, a new family, and a new hope. And then we turn the corner into 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 2.10. And it's here that Peter suggests that because of this new identity, because of this security, we're called to live life a certain way together and before the world, that we have a certain vocation. And he says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But then what does that look like? What does it look like to carry that out in the world? And Will preached on the text, 1 Peter 2, or 11 through, uh, verses, through chapter 4, verse 11. And he suggests that, that, that Peter is using the images of slave and stranger and wife to suggest our way of being the church in the world. As a stranger, we're peculiar because of the type of life we have. But as a slave, we're also to be, to not, to lord it over people, not to be aggressive. And also as a wife, we're to be gentle as we portray God to the world. And then we're going to turn the corner here into the last and final passage of Peter, in which he begins again to talk about suffering. What does it mean to be a church, a people of God, in a time of suffering? And certainly the suffering he's talking about specifically is that of persecution. So this passage, I'm going to kind of walk us through the passage a little bit and then make some observations. What's important to know is this passage is actually bracketed um, in verses uh, 4, 12 through 9, and then also in 5, 9 through, th- 9 through 11. And it's bracketed to remind us that this is a passage about suffering. Now it says this in verses 12 through 9. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then if we kind of move down the text, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 5, it says, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I've never believed those words more than when you, Ramona, read those. So thank you for that. It was amazing. So this is almost as if Peter is saying, okay, this passage, what I'm about to say, is about suffering and what it means for us to be the church amid suffering. And he's going to suggest a few different postures that we're to take in suffering. Now, the first posture is going to be that of joy. Again, if we look at verse 12, don't be surprised. So there's this assumption that the people of God are going to suffer. And again, it's because of their peculiarity, because of their connection to Jesus and their strangeness, that they're going to undergo some sense of persecution. But don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then what Peter will continue to do is to continue to connect their sufferings with the suffering of Jesus. But how does Peter do this? This seems to me like the worst pastoral move ever. To somebody who is suffering, 
Well, just rejoice. Oh, good. All right, seems easy. So, I mean, I don't understand. So why would Peter do this? Well, I actually think it's a really significant reason why he would do this. It's because their lives are so connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's really interesting. Is that, again, this isn't about, like, a general suffering. I, Peter is not saying that we should go around to people who have, have undergone a deep sense of tragic loss or even ailing in their health and say, you know what, just rejoice. It's all good. This is about persecution. And they're being persecuted precisely because they are like Jesus. Rejoice in the fact that you are like Christ. But not just that. There's this sense in which because their lives are so connected to Jesus Christ in their sufferings, that Jesus Christ is also present in their sufferings. Because the story of Christ is so over the story of these people in these churches, it's as if Peter is wanting to remind the people that Christ is suffering alongside of you. Just like it seems like you are suffering alongside of Christ. He can't separate those two stories. And because their stories are so deeply connected, that is opportunity for rejoicing. That is opportunity for joy. Because of who they're connected to. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what makes it possible, I think, for them to trust. So if you look at verse 19, after he kind of connects their suffering to the suffering of Christ, he then moves before chapter 5 to say, Therefore, let those who are suffering according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because the creator to whom they are called to entrust their lives is the creator who is no stranger to suffering is the creator who is no stranger to persecution. God himself came to us and suffered death on the cross. He knows. He knows what you're going through. And I do think that we can make a connection to this general sense of suffering. That even in our suffering, there God is. In our experience of death, there God is. He, too, has experienced the pain and the sting of death. You are not alone. You weep, God weeps. And that is why we can trust God as a faithful creator. And then Peter moves into chapter 5, and he begins to talk about like the community life. And he talks about this relationship between the elders and those who are kind of under the leadership of the elders, starting in verse 1, chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now one thing, or at least an aside, I'm really struck here that P- 
Peter's understanding of at least the, the, how the church functions is completely different from how we understand it. Peter doesn't say, so I exhort you, one single pastor, to shepherd the flock. Peter has this assumption that the leadership of the church is shared. And it's shared among a group of people who have taken up a charge to lead and to shepherd. And so he's saying, fellow elders, you are to shepherd the flock, but here's the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it in a way that mirrors Christ. Not under compulsion, but eagerly, not for your own gain, but you're to shepherd the flock out of care and concern, the loving compassion of Jesus. But then he says to those under the leadership of the elders, you who are younger, in verse 5, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just those who are supposed to follow, but the elders included, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What is going on here? It's so interesting that here we have this this kind of talking about suffering and its connection to Christ, and then this kind of conversation about the elders and kind of those under the charge of the elders. How do those two things connect? And then you have humility. Well, I wonder if some of these things are connected because in times of uncertainty and instability and chaos, certainly in this church persecution and and the churches that Peter is talking to, Things kind of go crazy, right? All of a sudden, there's this sense of, of a lack of orderliness. We're going to do that. You're going to do this. I'm going to do my own thing. You're going to do your own thing. And Peter's almost suggesting, no, there needs to be some sort of function to the church. But here's how it's going to work out. It's going to actually be one of the primary things that's supposed to define your life together is humility. Because in times of fear, isn't humility one of the things that goes most quickly? Well, that's how it is for me. When I am fearful, when I am uncertain, there's this temptation to want to be in control. I know what's best. What I want, my sense of security, is actually primary over other people's. I want to lord things over others because I am trying to get this sense of stable living, of bring the chaos into order so it's not pandemonium or at least my individual life isn't. And I begin to do it at the expense, I think, of the desires and needs of other people. And so it makes total sense to me that humility would be one of the the primary characteristics of life together, especially in a time of instability and uncertainty. Because we need to be trusting God. Right? As it says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Security is only possible when we're connecting it to the power of of who God is and what he's done. Not by what I do, not by what I, my ideas of what a safe life would look like, what a safe, good church would be, but under the guidance 
and the loving presence of the God who has created all and who has shown himself to be the one who comes to us in Jesus. So humility, the operative kind of characteristic of life together in the community is what Peter is encouraging the people to do. There's this incredible quote by Thomas Merton. It talks about what's, what happens amidst fear. And he says this, fear narrows the little entrance to our heart. I love that. Fear, fear narrows the little entrance to our heart. It shrinks up our capacity to love. And it frees up our power to give ourselves. Don't you feel that? Like in those moments of fear, in those moments of instability, that fear kind of grabs hold and you become almost like you have this tunnel vision, this myopia, you can't see beyond yourself and what you think is best. And then it also, kind of with that, shrinks your capacity to love because you can't notice other people and it freezes up power to give ourselves away because, again, it's about us, it's about me. So that's one of the ways I think humility is connected here and that's also why Peter says, to cast your anxieties upon God who cares for you. Verse 7, humble yourselves in verse 6, and then cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's so key to living life together in times of what feels like utter chaos and confusion and instability. In times when futures seem uncertain, and we're not sure what is going to happen. I feel this is like such an important word for us in our time together as a church, given where we are. Peter also says we need to be watchful. In verse 9 or verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the, by the brotherhood throughout the world. Honestly, if, upon first read with this, just so that you, because I'm assuming that maybe you have this thought, like we up here know things. Um, and it, it, it's easy to read things a first time and to be like, honestly, Peter, it just seems like you had this list of things you needed to get to and you didn't do it before, so you're just going to throw it all in at the end. Um, because, he, again, we talk about suffering, and then elders, and then younger, and then now the devil shows up. Uh, okay. Um, so, but how does that function in Peter's letter? What might Peter be attempting to do? Well, I think kind of providing, as he actually does in the first chapter of, of his letter, is that this is all the work that is happening among us together is actually taking place on like a spiritual stage, perhaps. There's actually more going on than we might think. And so Peter kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and says the evil around you that you're experiencing, it has spiritual dimensions. It's easy to think that it's just an individual doing one thing to another or groups of people doing one thing to another group of people but perhaps there's a spiritual reality going on in the world that evil is a thing connected in some ways to the devil, as Peter says it, that there is a spiritual background 
to our lives. Now, what do we do with that? People have been wrestling with that for centuries, how we think about that. But what I know what it causes me to do and want to do is to pray. It causes me to to want to look to God as the one who is capable and able to combat these spiritual forces that are at play. What it causes me to do is to realize that my life and our life together is caught up in something much bigger than this building and this city, but it's actually caught up in the whole work of God. And that should be humbling. And that should move us and push us to get on our knees and to pray in the face of evil, in the face of things that make no absolute sense. And we need to be watchful. And we need to be aware. And we need to be a group of people who are willing to look to God as the one who is our help, as the one who is Lord over all. That is at least one way that I think Peter's exhortation to resist the devil is connected to this. And then in verse 10, he says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, what I think Peter is doing here, and what he's been doing throughout this whole letter, is pushing the community to hope. And our hope isn't in what we are capable of doing. Our hope is in the God who has created all things and who has given his very son, Jesus Christ, and that our lives are wrapped up and connected to that story of Jesus, to his life, to his death, and to his resurrection. I kind of want to end by talking about this film called Of Gods and Men. I'm sure, I've thought about this film a lot, and I'm sure I've shown it, but I'm also sure that even when I did, you guys didn't go out and watch it. Shame on you, so I, it's okay. Um, but I think that this, this film offers a really amazing picture of what it means to be a community, a faithful community, amidst suffering. So this film is about, it's about the Algerian Civil War, and it takes place in like the hills of Algeria. And it's about these French monks who are living in a monastery in the middle of, of, these, of this Muslim people group. Being a blessing to them, helping them with, uh, with medicine and with food. And when the Civil War begins, they actually find themselves in the middle of it. And they're asked to leave. Because they aren't part of the Algerian people or this community. And they refuse to leave because these people have become their neighbors. They can't leave. This is what God has called them to do. And it actually ultimately costs them their life. They do end up being martyred, being killed, for remaining faithful to the people where God has, has placed them. And there's this one scene when, when this group of our Algerian officers come to the monastery and they, they, 
force these monks to come out and to line up. And they have this wounded soldier and they need medicine. And given who these monks are and because of who Jesus is, they, they end up in some ways helping them. But it kind of, it, it obviously unsettles them. Like, what else is to come? They don't die in this moment. And so what are they supposed to do? Are they going to leave? And they don't leave. And this actually takes place around Christmas, and the only thing they know to do is to celebrate the Christmas vigil, to welcome the Christ child through their life together and through their liturgy. And there's this character named Christian who kind of reflects on this moment. And I put the quote up here because I think it's really amazing. And he says, you know, we welcomed that child who was born for us, absolutely threatened, and already so threatened. And afterwards we found salvation in undertaking our daily tasks. The kitchen, the garden, the prayers, the bells, day after day we had to resist the violence. And day after day, I think each of us discovered that to which Jesus Christ beckons us. It's to be born. Our identities as men go from one birth to another, and from birth to birth. We'll each end up bringing to the world the child of God that we are. The incarnation for us is to allow the reality of Jesus to embody itself in our humanity. Now, why, why I think this is such a profound moment and why I think it connects to the book of 1 Peter is because here, here is, a, is a Christian who is attempting to make sense of their place suffering, in the suffering world and where they are. And the thing that makes sense of it for him is the story of Jesus, and in particular, the coming of Jesus. See, what Christian does in this film is what Peter does is to locate our lives together, whether that means our suffering lives together, our joyful lives together, in this larger picture of what God is up to in the world. And that's what the book of 1 Peter, in its entirety, is attempting to do. To the churches where Peter is writing. Asking these people to consider their stories in light of the larger narrative that begins in creation and ends in new creation and finds its climactic moment in the coming of Jesus because that is ultimately what is called to make sense of them as individuals and as a community. And I, and I was thinking about this this week and I was thinking how often I, I get concerned with, at least initially, with things like how, how should we be doing this thing we call church. What should worship, what should worship look like? Um, what should leadership look like? What should the church be doing or not doing? What should a specific ministry um, be concerned with or not concerned with? And we get, I get caught up in these questions, asking these questions, and what Peter is at least con- continually encouraging me to do is to say, set back a minute and consider the fact that this actually finds its root in the person of Jesus Christ. Forms are important, and I'm not suggesting that they aren't. They're absolutely important, because they communicate lots of things. But, often, I can fail 
to just be in awe of the fact that this is happening at all. I often fail to think and consider the remarkable thing that God has made possible in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is this. That is you. That is me. That is us. That is us with all the other us's in the world. All the other us's in the world, in the present, in the past, and in the future. I mean, if you think about that for a moment, doesn't that just kind of flatten anything and just say, what in the world? How crazy. Somehow, I am wrapped up in it. Somehow, you are wrapped up in it. Somehow, we together are wrapped up in this thing we call the Christian life, the story of God, the resurrection of Jesus. That's where any conversation about what it means to do and be life together needs to start. That's where I need to begin finding meaning in my individual life, in our life, our corporate life together. That's that's the beginning. Jesus Christ. Not opinions, not preferences. That you're sitting next to a brother and a sister that isn't related to you because of what God has accomplished on the cross and in the the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing less is taking place than that when we're together. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen.